are you listening to Discovery Debrief? And uh, so did I. It's Jason Isaacs, who was, at some point, some version of Captain Lorca. Right now, I'm just a fan. gentlemen and other fellow humans welcome back to discovery debrief a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in star trek strange new worlds discovery lower decks and more i'm co-host chris clow and i'm joined tonight by two members of our bold panel of star trek franchise explorers ty monaghan ah you and i are of a kind chris happy to say we're friends in this reality And a friend to us in any reality, Cicero Holmes. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> That's just the kind of friend you are, man. It's just yes. you're, you're the heart and soul of our crew. Well, um, this is actually going to be kind of a freewheeling episode, and this is consider this a cash in of an IOU. Because, uh, as I think a lot of us have talked about over the last several months, when we debriefed season one of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, we actually failed to provide you with a debrief of the season finale, uh, an episode called A Quality of Mercy. So we are going to do that today, but with a little bit of a wrinkle. So as anyone who has seen that episode should know, and since we're more than a year removed, I don't feel too uh, inclined to avoid spoilers here in the early going. If you haven't watched it, please do. But a big component of that episode's identity is the fact that it dovetails with the events of a rather momentous episode of Star Trek, the original series, uh, December 1966's Balance of Terror. Uh, episode eight of season one, which is uh, famous for a couple of different reasons. One of which being it depicts a conflict in sort of a, like a submarine combat kind of way. I feel like Star Trek two took a fair amount of inspiration from this episode. In addition to all of the other cinematic inspirations that Nicholas Meyer had. Uh, but this is also the first episode of the franchise in franchise history to depict the Romulans. Uh, arguably maybe a rogue segment of uh, of the Romulan military, uh, or maybe not, depending on the wrinkles that uh, Equality of Mercy provides. So what we're going to do is we're going to go between talking about Balance of Terror and Equality of Mercy, because you can't really have Equality of Mercy without Balance of Terror. Um, I really have a lot of affection for Balance of Terror as an episode, uh, not only is it a, a great depiction of um, sort of the dynamic on the Enterprise crew outside of the core triumvirate of characters, but it also is, uh, you know, it's a story of two tactical geniuses, uh, a very tense diplomatic situation, and something that not a lot of people on the Enterprise seem to know what's really going on about until probably about halfway through the episode or so. Uh, so I just think it's a great showcase of, uh, of of that guy that we know. James Tiberius Kirk. On top of that, uh, 
A Quality of Mercy is an episode that gives us a look at an alternative future where Captain Pike is in command of the Enterprise well into the time that we understand Kirk is in command of the Enterprise. Uh, and it's the events of Balance of Terror, but with a different perspective with a captain who's arguably more uh, diplomatically inclined than someone like Captain Kirk is. And in most situations, I think uh, certainly people on this panel would probably be predisposed to wanting to go Captain Pike's way, but that might not be the right course of action in this particular sequence of events on top of the, um, let's say, comment on the importance of another member of the crew uh, by the time we get to the end credits. So I actually want to throw it to Ty first when it comes to, because you saw a quality of mercy, at least as far as I understand it, kind of in isolation. You didn't see balance of terror until afterward. So what do you make of the TOS episode? itself before we talk about equality. Of yeah, mercy. totally, totally. So so you just said like there's no quality of mercy without balance of terror. And I can tell you there sure is when you watch it and you don't know that the other one exists. <laughs> um and actually like I only watched Balance of Terror in preparation of this podcast that we are recording mm-hmm. right now. Um, and, uh, like I, I didn't, I didn't really realize what I was getting into. So my mind was kind of blown when, uh, from the moment Kirk is sort of like from the earliest days of, you know, ship captains, like captains have had this happy privilege. And I was like, what? But, um, (laughs) yeah, overall as an episode, I thought it was like, um, it does like illustrate kind of what I've mentioned on this podcast before about the original series, which is like, it's just slow relative to today's shows. And even though um, it's a really strong, interesting episode, there are still kind of like lulls in the middle where it's sort of like, okay, like I got the theme, like it's getting a little bit repetitive here. Like we can move it along. But that said, um, really, really fun episode, really strong, like super memorable. Like the, I was just telling Cicero just before we started recording today, like, uh, that part where the, uh, Romulan, uh, commander is like in, he's like clutching his head in anguish and he's like, Kirk, he's a wizard. And he like, he can read my thoughts or whatever is, <laughs> you know, it's awesome. Um, and like, it, it was, it was cool for me to see what, like a lot of what you're always talking about, Chris, which is just like Kirk's just like, competence and skill as a captain and especially as like a combat commander um and so yeah it was cool it was a really fun episode to watch it totally changed my perspective obviously on the episode of strange new worlds uh that that went along with it um and just i think kind of a fun order to experience the two in for me personally totally and we'll have to absolutely unpack that a little bit more uh later on uh Cicero, what do you make of Balance of Terror? I mean, I assume you've seen it uh, maybe a couple of times before, um, but in context with this particular adventure, how does this episode hold up specifically? So, yeah, I, I definitely have memories of having seen it before, but never, but never really taking in what it all meant for everything, and then, and really, um, it's it's with this this particular episode of quality of mercy that that balance of terror really kind of amplifies itself. And, you know, obviously the, the, you know, how it helps Canon is, is, is right, you know, is right there. And, 
but really, I think, you know, quality of mercy really helped enhance balance of terror for me. Um, I think the interesting thing for me is now that we have, we've, we've, added the Romulans into the mix and, and we've seen the different ways these two captains uh, could have handled this, this situation. What it most makes me think of is the fact that like Kirk was on the Farragut in the Klingon war. Right. Mm -hmm. So he, he was someone who, had to think about wartime stuff, right? And 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 was conditioned to think aggressively and think about the enemy as a combatant. Uh, whereas Pike was on the Enterprise and they were kept away from the Klingon War, um, where he was able to concentrate on diplomacy and have hope and 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 uh, look to look to their. Uh, opponents as people that just need to be understood, right? Like there's always a way, there's always a pathway to peace um, through some some sort of diplomacy. And we got to see that play out within this episode. Uh, so like th- that was, that was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, and also just some some notes uh, in terms of continuity. So uh, Paul Schneider, who served as a screenwriter uh, for TOS, and he wrote uh, two very memorable episodes. He wrote this one. He also wrote another one called The Squire of Gothos that was kind of a forerunner to the uh, whimsical, omnipotent creature. Trelane is very much like a prototype Q. Um Schneider is the one who is credited by the production team of the series as the father of the Romulans. Um, so, you know, this episode introduces, I think, arguably the most fascinating antagonist in the Star Trek franchise. You could slot the Romulans in with, you know, a whole host of uh, American foreign adversaries of their times. You know, in the 60s, they probably could have stood in for Russia as time went on I think the uh the the creator of different narratives might have started describing traits exhibited by the Chinese government to uh to Romulans in some of those stories uh in some of the limited uh applications of the Romulans in Enterprise for instance I think we can sort of see that um but just on its own merits the the creation of the Romulans really does give the Federation, uh, probably a more cunning adversary than they, uh, than they otherwise would have had, you know, this is relatively early on in TOS Romulans actually predate Klingons in terms of the production of season one. So, uh, that's just as an artifact of the franchise. I think this episode is fascinating on those merits themselves, but I really, uh, I like your observation, Cicero, you bring up the the Klingon war and what Kirk's place might have been serving on the Farragut in that war. And I hope that the franchise explores that more because as we know, uh, Jim Kirk has a very complicated relationship with Klingons, with the Klingon empire, with specific Klingons that he has faced off against uh, well before they murdered his son. And uh, allowed arguably his bigotry to kind of take over his perspective of Klingons. 
So I feel like there's a lot of narrative runway to potentially explore that further. Um, but we'll have to see, you know, I, I didn't think that that was something that was possible a couple of years ago. And now, you know, with the, the casting of Paul Wesley, uh, and some of the stuff that they're already doing with Kirk, it looks like it's a distinct possibility that we might be able to see more from him in the years ahead, presuming that everybody can come to terms (laughs) and we could actually get another Uh, season of this show. Yeah. I was, I was just about to say, I I love your, your presumed optimism, uh, Chris, but, uh, yeah, yes. Someone's got to bang the drum for right. There, oh, there are caveats all over the place. Somebody, oh, somebody's got to wail the drum. Shout out to <laughs> Kyle Sullivan. Yeah, most definitely. Um, well, one other thing too that I think would be good to explore about this episode is that you know we learned so much about the Romulans just here that the franchise will continue to wrestle with decades later. You know, all of their appearances in enterprise and arguably, you know, what we've heard about them in strange new worlds is colored by this episode because no one had any idea what a Romulan looked like. Uh, there was never like a visual establishment, even during the war, like a founding conflict of the Federation. Humans didn't know what Romulans looked like. And Dorians didn't know. Tellarites didn't know the Alliance that became the Federation. No one knew. And then when that view screen pops on, bigotry of lieutenant styles just seems to take hold and he starts looking at spock very suspiciously and uh you know the depiction of that kind of intra crew conflict informed by uh, a casual racism that was arguably far more prevalent or at least outwardly prevalent in the 60s than it sure. is to at least there's a some there's like a pretext of in polite society today you don't do that even though people are might be thinking it. But, <laughs> um, tell me what you guys thought about just the way that that conflict uh, sort of unfolded on the bridge of the Enterprise and and Kirk stepping in to really quash it. Uh, Ty, what did you make of that? Yeah, um, and I, like I'll just, just to your point, like historically, like I, I don't know a lot, <clears throat> you know, about U.S. propaganda in like the Korean or Vietnam War, but certainly, you know, in World War II, definitely, like you're not far off from very, very, um, not just like overtly racist propaganda, but where that's actually the point of the propaganda is like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like pick your allies apart from your enemies type of thing based on their, uh, physical traits sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, really cool to see, like you said, that kind of conflict on the bridge. I will say just like, bef- <laughs> before I kind of like praise it, I thought it was like a little bit corny how, in one episode you have like this helmsman who's like, yeah, come on, sir. It's the Romulans, like blow them up. Like we all know they're bad. Like it's the Romulans. Like, and then like in equality of mercy, it's like the same, like the person sitting in the same exact seat, (laughs) but this time it's Ortega's being like, come on, sir, you know, it's the Romulans, like blow them up. I'm like, you could have at least picked someone sitting in it. There were like some weird, I thought like parallels for the sake of cute, like, you, you know, like on film parallels that sort of like didn't, didn't make a ton of sense to me between these two episodes. Um, sure. But that said, I thought it was really cool to see the disagreement among the crew. And I thought um, I actually like just 
watched uh, the TOS episode with Cicero, like right right before I recorded with you. I think I already said that. Um, but uh, it was cool to see, like in particular, like there's this moment where even Spock is is like, um, yeah, like we should we should fight back, you know, like we should attack um, the Romulans because if they're anything like my people, they might be at this point of development. Um, the analogy I used to Cicero was like, like crusaders, right? Like if you're dealing with crusaders, then it is sort of a different, like kind of unenlightened logic that might um, apply. And it was just really interesting to hear like Spock, the super reasonable, you know, emotionless one kind of advocate for the course of action that we would, we would presume to be more uh, like driven by emotion, right? The more violent, the more um, reactive course of action we would think is the more emotional one, but the way Spock presents it, it kind of, it kind of makes you double take. And, and it's actually like maybe like Chris uh, Pike's um, course of action is the one that's actually a little bit more driven by emotion um, and less by, by cold reason. Um, Like they blew up your star bases, you know what I mean? (laughs) um, So I thought that was really, really cool to watch the way that that unfolded and the way it unfolded kind of like in parallel between the two episodes. Yeah, the aspirational quality of Pike's emotion. Um, You know, he hopes for a peaceful resolution, whereas being more pragmatic might require a responsive, but the way that you describe that too, and I can't help but think of this and tell me if you guys agree with this, did balance of terror and Spock doing that maybe inspire the Vulcan hello right? and the beginning of the Klingon war? Like, is this something that people raised by Sarek just kind of have in common? It was immediately, it was immediately what I was thinking uh, really? as he was, as he was, uh, Spock was starting to, uh give his explanation it was i was like oh it's the vulcan hello and you uh you know this is uh, you know but and, and and to be fair the romulans on the bridge confirmed that that's what their expectation was was a vulcan hello um and and if they had received the vulcan hello then they would know that they you know maybe now is not the time to try and start an and start an invasion mm-hmm. yeah I don't know. Ty, did you see any potential parallels there between Spock and Michael in that moment? Um, I didn't really think about it a whole lot. And even Cicero, when you said that, I didn't really get what you meant. But um, I do think it's interesting. Like Discovery is obviously a very like Michael is um, the the great man in that show, right? Like she's the one she's a driving force. She's kind of a messianic figure. And like, um, you can see in this episode that same type of right like the captain of the enterprise determines the course of history in this um kind of fork in the road in history here um and i think it's just kind of interesting to see star trek lean so heavily into that right like the idea that um this one person's uh actions like it, it reminds me of uh like this is probably factually incorrect and I'm, I'm gonna get this wrong but i think like one of the presidential libraries or museums like either the the reagan one or the kennedy right like i think it might be the kennedy one has like a simulation of like the bay of pigs thing of like how would you handle it right like how would you like the decision making right and it's just kind of that idea um that like 
in that case, like nuclear warfare, intercontinental warfare. And in Star Trek's case, like they say like millions are dead, right? Um, yeah. Just in the few years that it happens between, uh, yeah, the few years that the war is going on uh, before Chris goes back in time to talk to himself or, or yeah. whatever. Um, and so I, d- I do think it's interesting to see Star Trek lean so heavily into that idea that like one person's response to this one kind of almost like chess match like um, situation by the Romulans, right? Like it's never super clear to me in either episode what they're doing other than just testing the Federation, right? They're, they're seeing what they can get away with and um, seeing whether their bluff is going to get called. And uh, it, yeah, it's just uh, interesting to see the show lean so, so heavily into the idea that like that one person's decisions and their uh, instincts and the way that they, translate those instincts into orders for their crew can like determine, you know, like millions of, of casualties one way or the other. Um, so I guess in that way it is, as I'm talking, I'm like, okay, that is very, very similar to what you guys are saying with uh, the Vulcan. Hello. Well, but I, I didn't really like draw that parallel with, with, you know, them both being sure children yeah. of Sarah. I, I just had to ask because you, I, you're the discovery yeah. champion probably among our panel. That's all. So, but it, it's funny, you know, it seems even more re- – the, the themes of this episode seem more relevant now because you're talking about what? A belligerent power that is testing its limits by pushing into the borders of another sovereign power. Where have we seen that before? Uh, yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's old as new. Right. You know? right. Unfortunately, in this case, but still – Chris, Chris, I, 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 allow me to ask uh, pedantic continuity questions, please. Um, Ooh, I'm so, so into it. Um, based on future Pike's uniform, that places him around the time of of Wrath of Khan, mm-hmm. right? So that would put that would put him. Another twenty years into the future, from, from that point, the seven years into the seven years into the future from the start of the episode. Yeah, roughly thirty years ahead. I mean, the earliest time. Dude. That the, oh, oh, yes. Oh no! Just, just go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so, Wrath of Khan. First time we saw the the quote unquote monster maroon uniform. Right. Um, that was I believe twenty two eighty five. So uh, roughly, it's weird how much time canonically passed between Star Trek's one and two, but it's right. like tw- something like twelve years. So it's kind of a lost era in there. But yeah, the monster maroon uniform. So if he is from twenty two eighty five, then he went twenty six years into the past, roughly. To and they sort of twenty six years up. into the past to get original pike to go seven years into the future so that'd be 19 years into his past <laughs> yes okay yeah why that's, he went that's back wild. to that that's moment. like some inner light type of stuff like he so that version of pike lived that long right, right. like he experienced this war and like god knows what else right and then he went back to find himself to convince himself to make a decision that would make it so that his like he would cease to exist basically that version of himself yeah. Yeah. would be erased from the timeline and like that's now, all we'll ever know about that guy for sure yeah and <laughs> as far as we know 
Pike uh, relinquished command of the Enterprise when Kirk took command. So that's 2265. So he probably could have gone back to any point that he was in command of the ship, I would assume. So why he chose this moment in time to go back to? Because it was... Oh, it was the day he made the decision. decision Yes. To write the letters. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That was the, yeah, that was the linchpin. Well, and, and the fact that it is where, that it lands where it does in the timeline seems to be significant too. Cause like we were pointing out, like, like, um, in this, uh, when he jumps ahead, when Pike jumps ahead, um, it's clear there that Kirk and, and Spock have never met. Um, which we, thanks to the magic of us recording out of order, we know from season two of strange new worlds, they're going to meet, uh, uh, quite a bit. So the butterfly effect of not writing that letter, uh, not only prevented that accident from happening, but it seems to have had some pretty immediate knock on effects in terms of, uh, various people not meeting up. Uh, you know, Kirk doesn't seem to be aboard the enterprise every five minutes the way he is, uh, in the timeline we know yeah. Well, well so Una, because Una is not there to mentor him. Yes. So considered that right because yeah, she winds up losing that case, I, and who knows why? Right? Like, who knows what the reason is that Pike wasn't able to aid? Well, I guess it wasn't even really. Was it Pike that? Well, so I think it's probably safe to assume, and granted it's an assumption, right? but I think it's safe to assume that the moment of writing the letter was like a point of divergence. Like yes. him Clearly. choosing yes. to write those letters, not only does it do everything that we see or affect everything we see in Balance of Terror, but it must have had immediate consequences, including what happened to her. Right. So like it, Pike probably could have used that uh, when making his case, older Pike, I mean, but they probably didn't know they were doing the, the right. angle that they were going with with uh, with Una's trial. But only the Klingon monks know for sure. That's true. That's, yeah, that's true. those time crystals. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I was on a um, another Star Trek podcast uh, after Discovery season two, well before Strange New Worlds was even a glint in CBS All Access's eye. But uh, it, it the the guy who Zach Moore he hosted Standard Orbit. We've had him on on debrief uh, for an episode of of Picard. He didn't really like the angle that Pike knew about his future. And my hypothesis at the time was that well, the further removed he gets from the crystal and from that moment, he's probably going to forget. But that didn't end up happening. He remembers. Yeah. And uh and like that's a driver of everything that we're seeing. So very clear going into this. Uh, less, but less so um too, too much to my delight is less so in season two true. um than than in season one. But uh but yeah, but I thought I thought it was well used in season one and this mm-hmm. episode, you know, was the culmination of that. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. Uh, well, before we jump over more specifically to Quality of Mercy, is there any final thoughts you guys want to share about Balance of Terror, about the characters, about the story, about its place in the franchise? Uh, uh, well, uh, yeah, one one thing that I'll say is is that I um, 
it was all of, all of TOS was shot in a particular way. I love the fact that you know, quality of mercy that we we wind up getting to see that uh, again. And uh, Ty and I were talking about it as we were watching Quality of Mercy uh, tonight. Um, so um, yeah, but but yeah, I mean, like it, it. So sometimes it's cool to revisit things um, once you know, once you have like more history and you have like more. Uh, personal self-awareness of of not only yourself but of the of the you know the franchise and the content um, within the franchise within the franchise um, so balance of terror like it actually kind of sits with me more now than it ever had previous so uh you know <laughs> I guess thanks chris for for making us uh record this episode <laughs> my my pleasure I assure you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I wasn't uh, sticking to the script. I was talking about both episodes this whole time, so my bad. <laughs> but I will say, with Balance of Terror, I really, really liked, like, you know, the the couple that's about to get married, and I guess their marriage is, is interrupted by the events of the episode. Tomlinson's, yes. Um, yes. In, in both, interrupted by death. Well, <laughs> she's already a Tomlinson? They both just have the same last name well, before they no, get married? No, you're right. I, her, her name escapes me at the moment. But um, because the, I, I mean, I've lived my entire life with McCoy repeating Tomlinson's name multiple times. So that's the one that's burned into me. Ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. But um, yeah, I, I just really liked that. Like, I thought that was like a surprisingly poignant framing um, and like a surprisingly kind of, um, yeah, just like sort of bitter conclusion to it in the episode. Um and, and so, yeah, I just, uh, it was, I was impressed, um, with the way that, uh, balance of terror kind of, uh, yeah, felt current both in terms of like the interesting kind of strategic layer, but also that emotional relationship layer, um, was, uh, yeah, it worked for me. So, yeah, these are the people that pay the price of their lives with these kinds of conflicts, you know, um, beautifully illustrated so ty is it safe to say then that at least at this point granted it's probably not saying much this is your favorite tos episode uh yeah sure yeah i'd be willing to say that yeah cool yeah it's a good one you couldn't go wrong with it but you got more to see someday when you have the uh the stomach for it it, what's up with yeoman rand i mean like i've seen her in some episodes but like they had like when it seems like they're gonna get obliterated by that plasma weapon they they definitely have like a like a moment you know um in balance of terror and then like the the weapon kind of dissipates um in what i thought was one of the more cool parallels between the two episodes like they they show that the the weapon gets less powerful with distance but they do it in a different way in each episode um like they kind of outrun it completely and balance the terror um whereas they just get hit from a little further away in a quality of mercy and i thought that was a cool parallel and i wish that i would have seen a little more of that compared to like the direct transplanting of like personas and situations from, from one episode to the other. Sure. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's totally understandable. Um, Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, But let's talk more specifically about a quality of mercy. Uh, It's just, this is such a fascinating episode. I mean, I think it, it's particularly fascinating because of its tie to balance of terror, but on its own, 
I mean, it aims to try and accomplish a lot when it comes to the, the affairs of the characters, you know, like the episode, I think does a really smooth job of making you think that the lesson Pike is supposed to learn is, well, he's got to cede command of the enterprise to someone else, but that's not what it's about. You know, instead it is granted, you know, maybe it wasn't necessarily required for a lot of Star Trek fans, but uh, the idea reinforced by the episode that Spock is going to be critically important to the affairs of the Federation and the galaxy in the future, like it, it, it's, it felt like a nice pivot at the right moment for me. Like I was already in the tank for this episode thinking it was a reinforcement of Kirk's command, but not going there and actually going to the pillar of importance for Star Trek in Spock. I feel like Discovery tried to do that in a couple of places, most especially with Unification 3, but this feels more weirdly authentic, I guess. I don't know. But what do you guys make overall? Like, What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you talk about Equality of Mercy? Cicero? Well, I, I mean, I think just following off of that theme, the the thing that you say is that like Spock is Spock is he is the Luke Skywalker of 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 Star Trek, right? Like he is he is number one on the call sheet. Um, there's there you know if if there is a hierarchy of the gods of Mount Olympus for for Star Trek, it is it is Spock. And no one will ever be more important than him, um, despite the fact that he is always seemingly a secondary character in the shows that we watch. True. Right? Uh, that he, you know, that he is—he's the Tonto, um, you know, uh, <laughs> to to all of to every, you know, to these captains, Lone, Lone Rangers, um, but. But uh, I mean, I, I I think that's that's the correct thing to do, right? So that even like Pike's importance is that he must die and sacrifice himself because Spock is more important than him. Uh, so therefore, uh, this is this is the thing that you must ha- that you must do, and that's the most noble thing that you can do. Uh, is is a it's weird, but it's, but it's right. Right. Like that's because, you know, it is, it is really all about Spock when it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Ty, what did you make of that sort of core idea? Yeah. Um, obviously like agree on the importance of Spock. It totally makes sense, but um, it's interesting hearing you talk about this. I'll see if I can get my idea across here to me watching this. Um, the thing that I guess I couldn't get over, like the Spock stuff feels like, um, kind of a, an effect of what Pike has to do, but like the, the like it felt to me watching the episode a couple of times, um, that the critical factor was actually Kirk's belligerence in this moment. And I just couldn't get over the fact that, um, the course of action that Pike took that the one that seemed like the one that like the captain Picard that I know would have taken, 
right? The like, no, there has to be a way to do this peacefully, right? There has to be a way to communicate with these people. Um, there has to be something other than just like shooting back in this moment. Um, like that was wrong. Right. And that caused this big war. Um, and Spock dies as kind of like a byproduct of that decision-making. But to me, the, the thing, um, that, uh, yeah, I guess felt like the bigger deal, uh, was the you know the triggering of the war itself and you can tell me if i'm i'm wrong about that um like in terms of like star trek canon or or whatever um but it just like kind of that was the thing that just like stuck out to me in this episode that i couldn't get over was like okay yeah i get it like the spock dying thing it kind of felt like they like sort of tacked that on at the end but the lesson it seemed like pike was supposed to learn was like that actually your style of like captaincy is not like suited for this, uh, this confrontation in history. And like Kirk is the one that needs to be in the chair at that moment. And like, that's the thing that has to happen or else Spock is going to die. Um, that was what I was getting out of watching it. Yeah. I don't think that that's wrong at all. I mean, I think that that's a, a very accurate way. It is a more accurate way of putting it by explaining those kinds of connections but uh i do think that just in terms of like franchise emotion a key directive was to uh illustrate the importance of spock in in the the grand scheme of things that pike seems to have some semblance of awareness of which is interesting in and of itself uh like how much of that does he know but right right well, yeah, and I, I, I'm, I was wondering about that as well because so there's, like, does is Pike even aware of who takes command of the Enterprise after his, you know, after his accident? I mean, uh, he, I mean, we, he is on the ship in the in the in the beep boop machine. Yeah, um, right, but. But like, you know, we don't know what that is, right? Like we, you know, it's not like Futurama. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So like, is he, is he even aware of Kirk? Like and Kirk's involvement with the Enterprise. But that there, is on there Yeah. There are times in this yeah. episode where where uh pike will infer that like the way that he presents the enterprise to kirk is in this wink and a nod knowing way that he will be in command but i don't know how he would know that he didn't explicitly indicate that he was aware of kirk being the guy that should be there right um that maybe that's a byproduct of what happened, but it, maybe he also didn't want to, like if he explicitly said Kirk's name, then at the end, would he have even considered like actually taking the time to learn about him himself? Right. You know, I mean, it's like he becomes aware of Kirk, obviously in this alternate reality scenario, but in terms of, of future Pike trying to influence his younger self into some kind of course of action, maybe right. mentioning Kirk's name 
as a critical component would have been a bridge too far uh, in getting the outcome that he wanted. Yeah, maybe. But it's supposition. You know, we don't yeah. know for sure. Yeah. But it's an interesting question uh, because clearly these are the stream of events. This is the stream of events that ultimately does get Kirk that job. Like we know that right. now. Right. So I can't imagine that Kirk's choice is absent Pike's influence now uh, as, as captain of the enterprise, you know, they, right. they probably picked him on recommendation from Pike because he started looking into this guy and liked what he saw. So. That's so, just, that, yeah. So Pike was in command of the enterprise when he, when the training accident happened. No, Kirk, right. I, I believe, well, I'm, you know, now that it's, <laughs> we're getting into, okay, you know what? I'm just, it's, it's we're here. <laughs> we're here. So. It's pedantic continuity time. So in terms of the mechanics of how these things fit together, uh, this episode kind of calls into question exactly how the stream of events is going to go when the handoff takes place, because we know Kirk's five-year mission started in 2265. That was actually established by Icheb of all characters in a Voyager episode where he's talking about Kirk. Icheb. Um, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Icheb. Um, <laughs> so the accident, because they were pretty loot, which we talked about before, because they were pretty loose on establishing how long before the menagerie, the accident took place, they described it as recent. So there's not so, and menagerie I believe is in 2267. So there's a two year window there where the accident can take place. Um, it could have happened uh, maybe right at the time Kirk took command, but in uh the most recent episode that Kirk appeared in Pike had that temporary promotion to fleet captain. And in the menagerie, Kirk says, I met him when he was promoted to fleet captain, which we talked about before. Did he just use that as a reference to both times he met him when he was promoted to fleet captain? Or is that just in reference to the first one? We don't know. This is, but this is the kind of pedantry that Star Trek fans are going to be fascinated by until the answer comes. So that's just, if if it ever comes, Oh God. Yeah. If it it ever ever comes, comes. don't remind me. Well, anyway, that was, we got pedantic continuity time out of the way a little early, but I think that, uh, that warranted it. (laughs) Um, well, what about just, you know, it's funny to think about where things were at in season one of Strange New Worlds. I think it's pretty safe to say that it was a season that kicked everybody in the ass um, and uh, a highly regarded season. Uh, and people are debating which one is better between the first and second one. The conversation this panel should have in the future. But um, what do you guys make of this as the cap to that first season of strange new worlds? I mean, obviously it's probably been a while since you've revisited season one or maybe it hasn't been, I don't know, but um, as uh, as the thing to go out on for the year, uh, I'm a little satisfied that it wasn't a cliffhanger unlike this year. Yeah. 
but uh but how do you guys feel of, about this story as a cap on season one uh ty yeah i'm glad it wasn't a cliffhanger um but i will like okay compared to the rest of season one this episode especially if you're watching it not knowing that it's like a parallel to uh balance of terror right let's say maybe you don't know that that exists um which as we've had a conversation uh amongst this panel there are people like that watching this show right um it's it's like boring compared to a lot of the other episodes of season one there's just like it's it's a slower episode and there's not as much going on um i think when you when you realize that uh or when you do know um and you have that touch point that it is a parallel to balance of terror um obviously there's another layer to watch for um but i do think as a finale as a cap to the rest of the season um it kind of brings in some new elements um in a way that maybe don't feel so much like a payoff um it it like kind of smacks of a little bit of that um that era back when they used to do lots and lots of cliffhangers between seasons right where they yeah. had to kind of get you with some like hook of like oh there's a new bad guy or something like that it it almost has a little bit of a feel of that between uh the whole the whole thing with the romulans and then the episode concludes with like it's like what like pike's girlfriend is the one leading this like team like security team to go arrest his number one like that's a little coincidental right um so it didn't it it didn't like like you know it was like okay cool this has been a really good season i really like strange new worlds um this was a a fine episode but it wasn't it wasn't like oh man wow what a like worthy and amazing cap to it to a great season for me sure understandable uh cicero what's your thought yeah i i kind of hmm, i kind of agree with ty Right, because if you if you remove the sentimentality from this episode, and you and you think about it in what we you know what we got on the on the outside on you know on the other side of the episode, um, we've got that Pike realizes that he can't escape his fate, which is something that they established early on in the in the season. Um, you know, something that he, he was coming to grips with, like, you know, within like the second episode, um, of the season and that Una has been arrested, right? So that's the cliffhanger is number one has been arrested and it was Pike's girlfriend. Like, yeah, why is it Pike's girlfriend? But, but Una has been arrested and, but she didn't ask for this job. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, she is sorry for the record. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But like, those are the things that we really got because everything else that happened in that episode didn't happen. Right. Um, And the, the other part of that is Pike knows what the Romulans look like. Apparently. Right, and he's not telling anybody. Yeah, yeah uh, that's you know you hear about stories of like, um, well, we're hearing a lot of stories these days about classified information, but uh, you know the <laughs> the requirements 
of sharing certain information that's critical to national intelligence or national security and how there are exceptions to certain rules to allow uh, the divulging of that information to the proper authorities. Uh, Wouldn't the Federation have wanted to know this? And why did he choose to keep it a secret? Maybe he forgot right away. Uh, but it Just doesn't like seem like forgot. that's a thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's not, he's not good at forgetting. That's no. one thing we know about Christopher Pike. That mind is a steel trap. Yes. Yes. Uh, but it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I honestly don't know. Well, I think for me, too, this gets at a much bigger question, which is like, can Strange New Worlds continue to do both things? by which I mean be the new flagship Star Trek show in its own right that is bringing in new fans, that's bringing in people who, like, yeah, they're familiar with Captain Kirk or, or whatever, right? But, like, they're not Trekkies who are looking for those connections, right? They're people who are looking for a fun new show to watch and, and the world of Star Trek um, and all of its handsome captains and stuff like that appeals to them. <laughs> and also a straight-up prequel lead-in series to you know og star trek the original series and i think so far it's been really really successful at being both of those things um but the times when i as a viewer who's more on that uh the former side a newer uh to the show you know like not as much looking for those direct connections to tos the times when it's felt the most strained to me have been the times when they're most looking to directly make those uh, connections. Uh, and, and like, that's the really interesting question that you're getting at here to, to me, Chris. I believe they have already proven how they can continue to do that in perpetuity. Uh, we had an episode in season two called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. That's uh, more time travel shenanigans this time with La'an and and also with another alternate James T. Kirk. Um, (laughs) All the Kirks, man. So they can continue to do that in perpetuity while also being more accessible than other shows because uh, all they need to do is think about it themselves. They need to figure out mechanically how that's going to work. And then find a way to include that information in a way that does not create some sort of roadblock. And they did that rather brilliantly in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow because, you know, if they want to do something that conflicts with canon, all they need to do is figure out, okay, what needs to change? What's a story idea that can help make that change? And what is the creative conceit? that will allow us to continue to tell our new story while addressing something that had happened before. That's what they did in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. When the time traveling Romulan details, how she has continued to try and try and kill Khan. Uh, she just wasn't quite able to get it. And also, Oh, this was something that was supposed to have happened in 1992 and time keeps pushing back. So they address what was established in TOS with the eugenics wars taking place from 1992 to 1996. Uh, And all it is within the episode for the core watching experience is a throwaway line that sounds kind of interesting, 
but actually solidly answers a, a continuity question that the hardcore fans would have. Right. That's how I believe they can continue to do that in perpetuity. As long as they continue to give it the thought, I don't care if it's necessarily something that everybody's going to pick up on. As long as you're addressing it in the way that you tell your story, tell whatever story you want to just tell us why things are different. Yeah. And I, I, I... Oh, go ahead, Chris. Do it in, just do it in a way that doesn't require a thousand sentences of explanation just, because if it does, then they shouldn't do it. Yeah. You had that stump speech ready and I'm glad to have given you the opportunity <laughs> to, to give it to it. Um, yeah. I, I, I do think that uh, they were much more successful at doing the thing that Ty was talking about in season two than they were. And, and in fact, actually, I think for, for most of season one, they were more successful at doing the thing that Ty was talking about. But it's is uh, this particular episode was so like it was purposefully built and shot and and created to to mimic to mimic this episode that uh, you know the, this episode that it's it's mirroring um, you know in Balance of Terror. Um, that, you know, I mean, down to the lighting and the, the lines that are said, the way that they're said, right? Like the, just the performances, the, the camera shots, right? Like all of those things were, were purposefully done to evoke memories of this particular episode um, yes. from the canon that if you had no interest or knowledge of those things, it's off-putting because it is so, it is so, um, you know, uh, uh, like uh, apocryphal from, from like how you would think this show or how you've watched, how you've witnessed this show um, been displayed to you over the course of the, you know, the previous nine weeks. So, so Can I ask you a I question? Can, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so does the fact that it is in an alternate reality, could that for an uninitiated viewer be justification right. enough for a difference in the aesthetic and cinematography? It, it could, right? Um, but it doesn't – it doesn't make it less – right? Because it, it – it doesn't make it less. Uh, I, I don't know, like old feeling, right? Like it just, it just felt right. Like it, it, it was, it was, it was purposefully shot to look like it was, it was evocative of the the performances of the sixties, and they they nailed that. And you, you know, you, if you're watching that and you're not used to consuming media that, that is performed that way, it will, it will feel ancient to you. See, this is, I think, where an enormous amount of subjectivity comes in. Right. Because I don't think that there is anything that you said that I could possibly disagree with. What happens though is i think people interpret those elements of the image differently to where 
points of comparison aren't necessarily being drawn, but the kinds of emotions that these images evoke is being more intently deliberated inside someone's mind, you know, but yeah. I mean, is it jarring? Yes. Right. The reason that it's jarring, I think varies wildly from person to person. I think I think anybody that was that was a fan of Strange New Worlds and had no idea that this had anything to do with Balance of Terror is is going, why is Ortega's talking like that? Why is it like I don't care what's going on, but why is Ortega's like, sir, it's the Romulans? Right? Like why why does she sound like that? Yeah, but also too. Like if I'm trying to approach this from the perspective of an uninitiated watcher, right? Then I just feel like the the outright and explicit setting of those stream of events in an alternate reality takes care of most of those questions. Like why is Ortega's acting that way? Well, she's had 7 years of something that has right. kept her where she's at and yeah, maybe I mean, yeah. you could see it from a couple of different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll right. tell you the part that didn't make sense to me is when they call that guy on the view screen and he's like, can you see it? Can you see the, the thing? Like how badly they blew up the station behind me? And Pike's like, yeah, I can see it. It's right here on the screen. You know what I mean? And then, he, and then like he cuts and the guy's like, there, do you see it? On the, it's appearing on the center of my screen and it's a big freaking Romulan ship <laughs> taking up three quarters of the screen. And again, it's like, yeah, man, we see it. And like that to me was the, like the jarring part. And like, I don't, I don't know what the in universe that was more explicitly like, like self-referential super humor. confused about how to use a view screen. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think like, I, I like, I think I've mentioned this on this show before, but like, I, I have a, a few friends who, who kind of, I think in some ways I'm like their Star Trek reference person. And they're like, wait, so what's the deal with this? Right. Like I'm watching strange new worlds or like I'm watching discovery and like Spock showed up. So, so like, what's the deal with this? It's a fun club to be in. (laughs) Yeah. And and I just tell them something that I I think you guys have said, which is just like, yeah, like uh, events, you know, are, can be considered canonical, but like aesthetics aren't. Um, And I know that's not quite what we were talking about here, but that's like, a very satisfying answer for people. Right. Um, and so I do think, uh, that Chris, like you are getting at something that like people sort of have at this point been trained to accept like the idea of like a multiverse and different timelines and stuff like that. And, and the idea that people are acting a little bit strangely, I think that makes sense to me that you can kind of hand wave a lot of that away by just saying like, yeah, who knows what's happened in the intervening time that we didn't see between the the split in the the road here. Yeah, and I think that's the brilliance of this episode is that it is written in such a way that uh, there is a lot of significant patchwork and intricacy of the foundation, but then when you put the panels of wood over it, it's just a wall, right? It is well built. They thought about the mechanics of the specific lines and the things that they were affecting in canon, but presented it in a way that... It's there if you want to know, but if you don't want to know, you're not going to tell, you know? So 
that I think is one of the one of the ways that I really admire this episode. On top of the fact that it's pushing my TOS buttons, it is just well constructed as a piece of uh, compelling fiction that is also rigorously worked on uh, to uh, fully implement the canon that it is a part of. You know, that's like it's such a sweet spot, and I feel like. When most discussions about any shared universe fiction come up and how uh, canon is uh, an impediment to telling a good story, uh, Star Trek continuously takes advantage of its longstanding continuity to tell more compelling stories. You know, it is recognizing what has come before and all of the creators that created stories before and helps to realize that you are including their work in your modern thought process. That's one of the single greatest values of like continuity in a longstanding franchise, not to get too philosophical or anything, but particularly in a world where these franchises are owned by multinational Mm -hmm. corporations and credit is a little too easy to lose for some of these people in terms of like these longstanding lineage of stories in different franchises, Canon is an acknowledgement of that work. And it is showing that that work is a significant contribution to this web that we're all working in now, you know? So Canon continuity, because it sticks in fans minds makes the creators stick in fans minds too. You know, continuity is pro creator. That's the that's the headline that I'm running with. Right. Uh, on top of the fact that I just think it's cool, you know. So hey, Cloud uh, 24. Speaking of continuity, something the uh my wife and I both watched um Balance of Terror together after having watched uh Quality of Mercy, and then I think after having rewatched Quality of Mercy, and um the he's not the character isn't named in either episode, but the Romulan commander. Um, just really cool to see that not just like the principal cast, right? Like who I'm sure has like, you know, the chance to talk with writers and stuff like that. And, and like, you know, uh, a lot of experience, like this is their full-time job. Right. But it's really cool to see somebody who's like essentially a one episode guest star. I mean, mm-hmm. I just thought that commander's performance um, was absolutely pitch perfect. And, and my wife and I were both totally struck going back and watching balance of terror. And we just said, wow, um, this guy just did like such an incredible job of mimicking kind of the mannerisms and, and even the look of the guy from the TOS episode. Um, but updating kind of his motivations, uh, he kind of arrives at a lot of the same place of feeling the sense of, uh, camaraderie with, uh, the captain of the enterprise. But, um, you know, his motivations as a character, the way he interacts with the rest of his crew are, are different across the episodes, but just a really cool continuity there. And I just thought that was a really cool attention to detail. So shout out to uh, Matthew McFad- McFadzine, um, you know, who played the Romulan commander in the Strange New Worlds episode for Maddie Mac. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I mean, clearly, and that's one of the things that demonstrates how proud this show is of its lineage too is that it is 
uh, doing the rigorous recognition of those other stories and those other aesthetics. And when it comes to casting the Romulan commander, seems like that philosophy informed the casting because the Romulan commander is a pretty important character in the history of Star Trek. You know, it was the first major Romulan we ever saw on top of the fact that the performer that embodied him originally is the guy that would go on to become Sarek and who was up for Spock at one point, interestingly enough. But um, no, the I think they recognize that it's a role that required so, just a solid actor to perform um, because it's an important one. And yeah, it, it, was, it was cool to see that attention given to the Romulan commander. Absolutely. Well, guys, any, any final thoughts just as, you know, just as an episode of strange new worlds, as the finale of season one, uh, what are your final thoughts on this and how has the reconciliation of balance of terror affected things? Ty. Yeah. Um, I was really struck watching the episode balance of terror by the way that they rationalize the fact that no one's ever seen a Romulan. And they really heavily emphasize that the reason for that is because the war was fought with atomic weapons, um, which are so destructive and were obviously fought, you know, spaceship to spaceship. And basically there is just never any opportunity for hand to hand combat of any kind. And, you know, you can't board a ship after you've nuked it. Um, and, I'm curious whether either of you had any thoughts about the way that they sort of backed away from that in this episode, uh, the quality of mercy episode. I mean, it's not like they said that that wasn't the case. Um, but I, I really can't see any reason why 2023 is a, a, an inopportune time to, um, kind of loudly bang on the drum of anti-nuclear proliferation, um, nuclear wars bad, I think in any decade. Um, and it would have been nice to kind of see Star Trek, um, go back to like a reminder that like, yeah, um, you know, we still live in a world where our country and, and others have stockpiles of thousands of these things. Uh, well, well more than are needed to <laughs> fight, uh, uh, you know, even intergalactic war if we needed to, um, so I thought that was kind of a, a bummer when I saw that in balance of terror, I was like, ah, oh, why did they, why did they not get into that? They just sort of said, ah, oh, they've never seen them. We don't know why, you know? Well, um, we're, oh. we're, we're going back. We have to go back. Look, double. it's, it's d- double, double pedantic. You got a double daily, double pedantic. Um, the thing that this gets back to is, an event that has been referred to as, you know, one of the single most pivotal in galactic history within the Star Trek universe. This goes back to the Earth Romulan War. Uh, the cancellation of Enterprise sucked on multiple levels. You know, the show was hitting its stride. It was in generally more solid and stable creative territory cast was certainly getting into things and stories were being told that were both more connective to star trek and just generally more compelling uh and those might be intertwined as we just talked about but um the show ended uh it was 2155 or 2151 to 2155 four seasons so each season accounted for an in-universe year 
2156 is when the Earth Romulan War started. That's another reason the cancellation of Enterprise sucks. That was a story that could have been told in that show. Because some of the things that we know from the Earth Romulan War, some of which were established in Balance of Terror, and Balance of Terror is still the clear authority on what happened during that war. Uh, the the end of the war led pretty much directly into the founding of the Federation. You know, it ended one ended, and then the Federation began this war that humanity apparently led against the Romulans on its own did something and upset the order enough that it led to the creation of the, of the Federation of bringing those other species into the fold. And that's something that enterprise started to talk more about was like the creation of a coalition that predated the Federation. But if the show had gone on, we probably would have gotten some of those stories, including the war and uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah. It could have been a, it, a thing I have a hard time thinking that an interstellar conflict when depicted in the modern age in particular was just ship to ship. They said that communications were ship to ship more often than not. Um, it's funny in high school, I was a part of a forum role-playing group that took place during the earth Romulan war. And one of the other guys in the forum came up with Romulan shock troops that once they're dead, their armor, their full body armor that they're wearing disintegrates the body inside of it. And it's like, make that game. <laughs> that would explain things too. So one of the, again, one of the tragedies of the cancellation of Enterprise and an ongoing opportunity to tell new great stories in Star Trek is the Earth Romulan War. And they have, there's like, been one TNG episode that referred to it. Uh, they laid the groundwork for what that war could have looked like in Enterprise, and that's kind of it. And the question about the Federation's knowledge of the Romulans and their physical configurations conceivably could also be answered there. That's a long, long road getting from there to here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Eh, well, yeah, faith of the heart, man. I was <laughs> curious why in one episode some of the Romulans have funny little helmets, but in in another episode, none of them have funny little helmets. You know, well, and in TOS, they're just like made up like Vulcans, right? And by TNG, they gave them like these hardcore forehead ridges to distinguish them, and that's something else that they're going to have to come up with some sort of answer for, like they did with the Klingons. So. Yeah, the changes of aesthetics. That, that uh, everything you said makes sense, but I still don't. I, none of that to me strikes me as a reason why in Strange New Worlds they couldn't have just thrown in like a hey, nuclear weapons suck. Well, yeah, sure. But all that to say that I don't know if we know that they have specifically said there wasn't like soldier to soldier war, but that doesn't negate the message. You're right. Star Trek could probably stand to take a position like Christopher Reeve did in 1987's Superman for the quest for peace, where he ridded yeah. the world what of a, the scourge yeah. of nuclear weapons. Oh man. Yeah. If he had only decided to let someone else 
write and direct that film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not very. I still like it more than Superman three, even though I love Richard Pryor. Uh, no, but man, Superman three has the most iconic fight. It does in the series uh, in that for, yes. in those first four movies. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, he didn't really. And he fought three Kryptonians in the previous movie at the same time. He did. He did. That was fine. But but they but they, in that movie, in Superman 2, everyone, they just started making up powers. People had telekinesis. And then they were, you know, they, you know that was like, it was, it was too much. In Superman but, 4, he puts the, the Great Wall of China back together by just looking at it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Someone, someone excavated under the Great Wall of China. That's that's a, a, an actual thing that happened. Oh my god! Irreparable damage has that. been made to the Great Wall of China. Oh. Someone wanted to make a shortcut. Two people wanted to make a shortcut. They they use an excavator. No. Um, let's get back to Star Trek. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, despite all of the things that I said about uh, the episode, it may have sounded like I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed it very, very much. Um, I, as an homage to something very important in the canon in the in the franchise's history that came before it, um, they did an incredible job of recreating the feel and uh, the effects and the and the like the full tenor of of Balance of Terror in this in this new episode, while also mixing in um, the things that make uh, Strange New Worlds great. And um, I, I really enjoyed all of those things. I love the performances. I love this cast. I love the crew. Um, and uh, there wasn't anything in this episode that, that really dissuaded me from that. Um, but uh, I could definitely see how, you know, going back and, you know, turning back time um, and going back to when this was the last bit of that content that I was going to get. Um how I could feel left a bit wanting based on what transpired throughout the course of that episode. Um, but, you know, especially a year removed, I, I've, I can say that I happily enjoy it because I've got 10 more episodes. Uh, let me pose this question to, to you guys really quickly. I was on a, I was on a different uh, Star Trek podcast as well. Um, and we were talking about how season two seems like uh, season one, part two. Uh, if you look at both seasons of Strange New Worlds as one long season, does it change the way that you think about the stories that were that have been told, uh, Chris? No, I don't think so. Um, because it has leaned into the episodic structure so much, you know, that's a clear element of the show's identity now. Right. So um, on that basis, the content between both seasons is very different from episode to episode with a couple of core themes, but the, the theme transition of the thematic storytelling, I felt transitioned seamlessly between season one and season two because of Una specifically. Oh, Cicero, you're, but so specifically because of that. So, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me 
that uh, that it managed to be so smooth in the storytelling and the way that it moved from from season one to season two. It just seemed like, regardless of the way that you watch that, uh, and we'll see what happens, or maybe we won't on the other side of this cliffhanger um, at the end of season two. But it feels very seamless to me. I guess that's all. That's what I'm trying to say is that it's very seamless to me. Uh, I'm still experiencing one of the stages of grief uh, about another Star Trek show that had 10 episodes Mm. followed by 10 episodes. And they called that a single season, even though they released them in two different batches, which was kind of a weird way to go. But I I think it actually ended up working really, really well for that show. Um, Talking about Prodigy, in case uh, listeners don't know. Um, and, and I do think that makes sense for me thinking about this show in that way. Uh, certainly like just to what we were originally saying a couple of minutes ago, strange new worlds is a show where I look forward to a new season starting. Uh, it is safe to say, I do not really look forward to season finales, um, as a huge explosive blockbuster, really exciting thing the way that I would with some other shows. It's just, that's not the expectation that they've, uh, created for me at this point. Um, but I also just like, um, you know, the weight, like I'm hearing, uh, you probably know more about this than I do, Chris, but I'm hearing it might be like a couple, couple years before we get another batch of strange new worlds episodes. Um, and I think for me, it's kind of like, um, you know, seasons, traditional seasons are, are clearly dead. Um, long live the new season of like, you know, seven to 11 episodes or something. I've seen some weird numbers here and there that you just have to wait like a a totally random indeterminate number of months in between. Um, And it's, it's really, I think what we're seeing is like, I I wish Kyle were here for this conversation, honestly, because he could probably speak to it more eloquently. But I think what we're seeing is um, showrunners and writers and stuff kind of trying to navigate what that means and, and trying to figure out, um, if and how they should adapt their storytelling to that new uh, kind of, you know, just like structure um, that their stories have to be told in from a business standpoint. Um, And I think it would be cool to see shows like, I I think for me, like this is a show where the traditional structure of like a season with a finale, it doesn't, it's not really making sense. Like it doesn't, it's not really working super well for me and, and um, kind of more thematic arcs that the, the characters are going through seem like the more kind of significant um, transition points to me. Right. Like I kind of think of like, Oh, we had this arc uh, where we really dealt with Una and like her, you know, background and deception or whatever. And we had this arc where we got into Mbenga, but those don't all happen sequentially necessarily. So um where does that leave you in terms of what to do with seasons? I, you know, I don't, I don't quite know. So. Sure. Yeah. I think that that point is, uh, is very well taken. The way that the storytelling unfolds is um, again, you know, whenever we get whatever's next, if ever we get whatever's next, uh, we'll have to reassess that question and see if there's any cleaner break that might take place in the kind of stories that they're telling. I think they, by now they're settled into what the show is going to be. I don't think they're going to do that. So, um, yeah, 
But it's like, it's so interesting, right? Like the episode before our finale, like of uh, again, I, I'm using our uh, hindsight because we recorded out of order, but before the yeah. season two finale, we got like a musical episode and then a finale, right? And it's just so right. different than like the show, you know, like DS9 in particular, I think of as like, you can start to feel it like four or five episodes away. Like there's going to be one goofy one, maybe like episode 20, and then it's going to be like this pretty slow serious burn where like some stuff is going to go down you know and it's mm-hmm. just um I, I understand that's not the world we're in anymore but i kind of i kind of miss that i kind of miss that savoring and the, the anticipation you know um knowing sure. that there's going to be a, an event yeah but you know i mean in order to do that you've got to have you've got to have at least like 15 episodes and and series aren't series aren't getting that right like, yeah like every episode is the event now yeah. right right because you know if you've only got 10 or seven i mean how many how many was was uh halo yeah i yeah. think it was uh like seven, seven right seven episodes yeah so well i've um, seen more of it than i thought then yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah so it, it i mean that show that show could have could have spent some more time in the in the oven, but no, nonetheless. But like they couldn't they couldn't have the two episode series finale buildup because you know by that time they they had just gotten started. Let me ask you guys, since you have sure. seen Halo in its entirety, yes, clearly a lot of money went into the production, you know, yes. and and in providing production value, yes, but. I, I'm not sure if I'm just overly biased or not. Strange New Worlds, maybe a comparable level of resources, but Strange New Worlds looks better to me, just from an aesthetic perspective. Is it my bias, or is there something there? Uh, I think, I think there is. Part of it is that there is a, already an established aesthetic that that the creators of strange new worlds was building off of and improving upon mm-hmm. versus um th- the creators of halo um having to essentially establish the, you know there there are templates that they can build from but there really isn't there wasn't anything that was that was there that they could actually really use from uh you know from like a like a set design uh standpoint sure i feel like halo uses bigger sets more routinely in every episode yes. than strange new worlds yes. does though. yes yes and i would still like outdoor more outdoor stuff yeah right and you know it was probably before like the dome thing that like mandalorian uses and right. the current star right. trek shows use but um yeah, I don't know. There's, there's just something about it that seems less rigorous and maybe less. Po- but I mean, in terms of the polish, I think you're right. But I mean, that show does take an enormous amount from the three four three games. Yes, yes. It in does. terms of designs, right? Um, some I mean, a lot of things look to me like they were recreated one to one, basically. Right, right. Well, I mean, and and. That is both a it is a a gift and a hindrance. 
um, for for them because there is an established version of those things. I guess now since everything is CG anyway, so you can you know if there if you can play play against or play as a character, someone can create that for a television viewing audience in some way, shape, or form. Take um, the model files from the game and then right. pump them into a 3D printer and you have your prop. Right, 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 right. You've got a prop or, or you know, you, you pump them in and you, you can start animating them with, mm-hmm. with a, you know, much more expensive animation tool that you're going to, you know, a cinema animation tool as opposed to a gaming animation tool. So I guess, you know, they, they doing that. And, the, you know, the few times that they actually did that, it was spectacular, but it was really, they were, they were very, very limited. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I think the, yeah, the problem with that show was, it was writing. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm writing, notwithstanding, I'm, I was just talking about the visual presentation, but what you bring up, it's so fascinating to think about, um, because you're right, like Strange New Worlds, obviously, it's descending from Discovery and the original series and sort of finding a way to combine them while doing its own thing that's evocative of both of them. Um, but that's also part of a 50-year-old franchise. You know, it's just like there's a modern interpretation of, of how we present the world to our audience. But then in Halo, it's like arguably a far narrower and closer aesthetic adaptation of the recent games than any fidelity strange new worlds has to like, what would you compare it to discovery or TOS? I mean, right. Maybe the movies, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, we're going to have to do like a dedicated pedantic continuity time about that. We stuff. are because it, yeah, like it, I can't go super into this topic. Uh, <laughs> listeners should, should definitely well, uh, played all the halo games. Press the search though. button on the, the podcast, uh, you know, app of choice and type in forward unto Quan, uh, where they can listen to their co-hosts, Cicero Holmes, Megan Watt and time on again, talk about each and every episode of the halo show uh as it aired in podcast form um so i have like very very strong um i've just been sitting here listening to you and i think chris like the way i think you feel watching strange new worlds watching this like franchise that's gone through these different iterations and right like you've seen it kind of like be refined and have people put their own different spin on it but also kind of like even though they're they're doing their own take they're kind of you know, like it feels like they're driving towards it. And in a lot of ways, it kind of feels, I don't know about you, Chris, but to me, it feels like Strange New Worlds is like kind of the culmination of this aesthetic uh, in a really just like, I don't know, that ship is badass, you know, like I just think yeah. the ship on it, like the Enterprise is just so, so cool in Strange New Worlds and the interiors and the controls and stuff like that. Um, I agree. I don't think Halo quite reach that level i would agree um but i will say like they there's been actually a fair body of live action um halo stuff before the halo show existed um and, and i think to me they've actually done something that i love which is tried to keep everything like really really realistic like they try and make things um, they try and use real materials. They try and make things gritty and dusty and they try not to make things so shiny unless it's a covenant thing, right? I'm talking about like the UNSC uh, type of stuff. Sure. Um, 
And I think like what I saw in the show is like that actually aesthetic working against them sometimes where it just, it, it almost is so natural that it just feels a little bit plain. Um, but, but like, honestly, just for me personally watching the show, like these moments of like when that Marine gets like needled out of the, the warthog that he's riding in and stuff like there's a couple and like when the, the, the elite like busts out the energy sword and like, there's that huge battle. And like, I think it's the first or, or second episode. Um, sorry, it's been a little bit, but like some of it I thought worked incredibly well. And sorry, I, I'm, I'm going a little, little, uh, overboard with the halo stuff, but, um, I thought they were right there. I don't, I don't, I think I would give it a little more credit than you would for, um, the way it translated kind of the, the dream style of what Halo could be in my mind to the screen in front of me. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, my understanding is you've played all the games, including Halo Wars, I think. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And have you absorbed Halo extended universe fiction? Yeah. Go. A good handful of the books. Uh, like I think uh, it's, since exploded and there are more books than i've ever kept up with yeah but, you know and a that's good old the eric nyland uh halo book right. yeah i mean that's the thing is that they have been so fast and furious with the publication of of uh non-game halo material that the the mechanics of the universe the complexity of the universe i would argue rivals star trek in terms of the oh, content yeah. that they've created and the web that they've yeah, I mean the Halo's history goes back thousands and thousands of years and uh and it has an incredible amount of density to it. Um so yeah, I mean but at the same time I just even though the density of the Halo universe I would argue is comparable to the density of the Star Trek universe, uh there is still just a, a different adaptive philosophy and the rigidity on the on the part of Halo versus the looseness, which some people think is a criticism of Strange New Worlds, especially in Star Trek circles. Um, both are just as devoted to their universes, arguably. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Went around the world a little bit. Sorry. Uh, well said, sir. How appropriate for Halo. <laughs> well yes you absolutely listen to forward unto Quan if you have any interest in uh in the halo show and contemporaneous accounts of it but um i'm glad to hear that you guys really enjoyed this episode in particular any final thoughts on equality of mercy it was good watch it there you go ty a plus plus would recommend very good Consider yourself debriefed and our IOU paid uh, because that is going to do it for episode number 106 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. If you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show wherever you found it. It only takes a minute. and Let us know if you wrote one and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter slash X, unfortunately, at DSC Debrief. Uh, and feel free to send us questions through that platform or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes and be sure to join us next time at what is likely going to be a discussion about the return of the USS Cerritos.
As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends.